Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 23, Episode 2. Coming up on the show, we've got the mutants and mystics, Microwave Man versus the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the mystery of the hidden kingdom of Agatha. I'm Benjamin Grundy. I flunked solo on this episode. Unfortunately, Aaron had some sad news late this week, uh, a sudden loss in the family. I'm sure he'll bounce back, but he just needs some time right now. It was really unfortunate because we got the news, yeah, as I said, late in the week. And this is why the show is delayed today. I realized I had to scramble and and fill out the whole show, which is okay. I've been uh, reading a whole bunch of stuff in the last couple of weeks. And over the last 12 hours, I've just been (laughs) kind of scrambling to make it all congeal and make sense. I've been going into uh, Jim Keith's Sources of the Illuminati. This is one of the weird books that Aaron picked up at that bookstore that's really out of the way here. It's it's over, you know, two hours to get out there and back. Uh, And he made a big trip the other day and came back with, I think, $700 worth of books. One of them was Sources of the Illuminati. Now, Jim Keith... You will remember that Aaron has been covering his work late last year. Keith was the guy who wrote that insane book on black helicopters. It was absolutely bizarre. But he he was a real uh, popular conspiracy theorist, a bunch of books on conspiracies, uh, uh, of course, in looking into the Illuminati. And he died in a really strange way, you may remember. He fell off the stage at Burning Man. <laughs> he just... I don't know if he wasn't performing, obviously. He's probably just dancing around. He fell off the stage. He broke his knee and he had to go to hospital to get his knee operation. And just before he went under for the operation, he told those closest to him a bit of a prophetic uh, warning. He says something along the lines, I don't have the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, I don't think they're going to let me come out of this. As in, he he had been targeted, and if he went under with the anesthetic, he he was going to die. They were going to kill him. Now he had the operation successfully, but then while he's recovering, he suddenly died. And the official explanation was that something about uh, his knee uh, triggered a, a blood clot that ended up in his lung, and he suffocated. But the coroner's report was it was some kind of blunt force injury. That, uh, that killed him. So the whole thing is a bit suspicious, especially because the guy said, uh, you know, they're going to kill me if you put me under. And he was very much into exposing the powers that be. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to go into uh, sources of the Illuminati, which I'll get to in a moment. But it ultimately led me in a weird direction. It led me back to something I've been looking into for a little while now, Mutants and Mystics by Jeffrey Cripple where he looks at this strange uh, reciprocal relationship between the world of the occult and the paranormal, especially paranormal experiences, and how it it feeds into pop culture, it feeds into fiction, and it, it almost becomes mainstream. It becomes mainstream tropes of our uh, sci-fi and fantasy and, and video games and comic book heroes. And that then feeds back into experience. Uh, So it's a really interesting look at all these connections that span across, you know, a century or more and lead into modern culture. And then one of the examples that's mentioned is uh, The Kingdom of Agatha by C.S. de Alvidre. It's this very famous French occultist from the 19th century whose book on the underground kingdom of Agatha uh, was published in 
I think it was 1910, posthumously after he passed away. It's a really bizarre, I'm not actually going to spend too much time going into what he wrote, but I want to talk about, maybe in the plus extension, the history of how the book was written and how it came to be, why he acted so strangely after he was finished with it. Uh, it, it also extends, if you're a plus member, it extends from what I was doing on the last plus show, which was some of the uh, claims from Benjamin Krem on Maitreya and the King of the World. And through the research I've been doing recently, I think we'll be able to trace some of the uh, plagiarism that he did, where he got his ideas from and how he twisted it. Uh, but the story behind some of these French occultists from the 19th century, it gets super weird. Uh, so looking forward to talking about that. That's coming up in plus. But let's jump into, oh, before I go into the stories I've got, I want to thank everyone for sending in uh, their videos of the drones in Colorado, their experiences, their sightings. Uh, unfortunately, this is one of the things Aaron was working on before he got his sad news this week. So we're going to push that into the next show. But from what we've been seeing, there are some uh, weird updates on that. It's like the activity of these drones seen over Colorado isn't going away. Uh, in fact, it seems to be increasing. And yeah, there's more to come on that later. So I just wanted to say thanks to everyone that sent them in. Anyone who has any news or updates or their own sightings or video or pictures of those drones being seen, if they are in fact drones, please let us know and DM me on Twitter. That's a good way to get in touch. Well, let's go into uh, the late Jim Keith's Sources of the Illuminati. Uh, not sure when this was published. It's got to be 90s, I believe. But again, he had that strange death. But the reason I wanted to go into this is it kind of, it, it's what I started reading this week. I mean, I eventually, to be honest, had to back out of it because Jim is, was pretty much insane. I mean, <laughs> he just really made some connections that were hard to grasp. But one thing I think he did get right was he says there are aspects of the UFO mystery that owe more to the activities of humans than ETs. He says there are strange clues that need to be examined in detail. These involve a tangled web of symbolism in the UFO mythos that fortunately resolves into a single meaning. Now, he says one of those strange clues is the bizarre story of Marty Kosky. Now, in the late 1970s, this guy, who was originally from Finland, he started circulating this pamphlet uh, as a last resort to escape what he believed was some kind of mind control torture. And I never heard this story before. It's really bizarre. So it, it all started in 1975. He started to be plagued by these unwanted voices that he believed were in the hotel room above him. Now, he, he assumed he was actually going nuts. He assumed he was having some kind of neurotic episode. So he kind of just put up with it. But it kept going intermittently until the summer of 1979 when it really started to escalate. Uh, Kosky found that he was actually losing control of his body and his senses were being scrambled. It's like something else was trying to pull his strings. His heartbeat became erratic to the point that he ended up going to the University of Alberta Hospital in, in Edmonton in Canada. Once he was checked into the hospital... The voice in his head, who had been bothering him for the last five years, suddenly identified itself. It claimed to be a spokesman for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. 
they told Koski, this individual, you know, imagine sitting in some royal, uh, mount, royal Canadian mounted police headquarters using some machine to telepathically get into his head. This uh, RCMP officer told Koski that he had been chosen to be a spy. The voice dubbed Koski the microwave man. Koski claims that while he was in the hospital, bizarre experiments be- were performed on him by the doctors. While in the meantime, interior voices were telling him to perform acts like stealing shirts and engaging in covert sales of cigarettes to other patients. Now, all of this was meant to be some kind of spy training, like the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's kind of like a what's the a Manchurian candidate situation where he was their guy. Uh, they were going to use their special uh, Canadian Mounted Police powers to make him their top spy. So I looked up this guy's manuscript. I had no idea where Jim Keith was going with this. I mean, it's such a weird story. I didn't know how he was going to tie it into the sources of the Illuminati. And by the way, his whole kind of angle on the sources of the Illuminati is that flying sources, UFOs, uh, some kind of human construction, and uh, maybe not all of them are, but a very large majority of them may even be illusions by the Illuminati. So back to Koski, this Finnish guy in Canada, appearing like he's going crazy. I look up his manuscript from the 1970s. You can find a copy online. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. He said, in one instance, while he was in the hospital, I was given medication but simultaneously warned by the voice not to take it as it was poisoned. He said, when I did take it, I suffered heart palpitations. He said, I was warned not to go into a certain room but I was later lured into it by a doctor who then subjected me to interrogation and a battery of tests related to sexual functions and organs. The interrogation began with an electric shock being applied to my penis. He said, then the telepathic talk of the voice encouraged me to masturbate to avoid becoming impotent, but I was unable to achieve ejaculation. Did this occur in the same room? Like, is this just some poor doctor who just wanted to give him some pills and make sure he was okay? And he just he just switched it out and started doing the deed in front of him according under the instruction of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Don't forget. Anyway, this voice warned him if he failed to ejaculate, he would suffer extreme consequences. He claimed his scrotum would become elongated and he would have to be operated on. Now, he claims that when he eventually was allowed to leave this interrogation room and go back to his hospital room, there was an old man there who was sharing it with him, some other crazy guy, and he says as soon as he walked into the room, this old man said something like, oh, they got to you too, did they? Well, look at me. And he pulled open his his dressing gown and Koski said... Uh, he revealed a scrotum 15 centimetres long. Now, (laughs) he later says when he left the hospital, he returned to his apartment, but he soon again experienced problems with his breathing. He had extreme headaches. Uh, He had to flee his home to seek release from the problems that were hounding him. Later on, when he returns to his apartment, he claims he was awakened by a phone call from someone who suddenly hung up again as soon as he answered. And immediately as this happened, he claims that gas started to pour into his room for about 15 seconds. And this caused his mouth to fill up with blood. And the whole time, the voice 
from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was telling him this was his last warning. He had to follow their orders and he had to be their top spy. Now, obviously, this is the thing about these cases. He knows that it's crazy. Like he's, he's uh, you know, consciously aware of how absurd all this is. And he said, afraid for both my sanity and my life, I decided to return to my native Finland, a decision that was to convince me more than ever of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police intrusion into the takeover of my life. So it's, he knows that it's bizarre. He knows that it's nuts. But everything he does, just some kind of some kind of confirmation of the paranoia. Like now he's doubling down that it's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, taking over his life. So eventually, uh, Finland, I think things get a little bit better. Uh, he has a great sleep outside. He finally discovers that he can sleep out in open fields. So he ends up just sleeping outside. And because he's actually getting sleep, it's lessening the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's microwave beams control over him. Uh, so eventually he returns to Canada and he throws in a couple of details. Like once the voices were back in his head, they would tell him not to worry about his credit card. Uh, because he was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's top spy, his credit limit was now unlimited. So he could max out his cards to to the nth degree. It didn't matter what he bought. Uh, and I imagine he proceeded to do this. Now, he said the voices suddenly became Finnish-speaking female voices too. He said when he returned to Finland... Things weren't better than they'd been in Canada. These voices still clung to him. So just reading through some of this, I'll put his uh, full kind of pamphlet, that he, his paranoia pamphlet that he circulated in the 70s in the, link, in the links in the show notes. But if you ask me, this is a classic case of spirit possession. This is what it sounds like. You know, the I guess the modern, uh, the modern classification would be paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, it's probably both. But Kosky never believed the voices though. This is what's interesting about it. He never fully believed them. It was a constant battle. Uh, the side of him that was resisting versus the side that had to give in. But ultimately his way out of this was just to completely add on other layers of conspiracy. So ultimately, and this is where he is today. I mean, the guy has a website. He still updates nearly daily. Like there's, I think the most recent updates were late uh, last year. And he's now believes that he's some kind of uh, target of telemetric brain manipulation by US intelligence, by the cabal, by you know, all these names you can apply for the powers that be. They're working with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, Keith writes in his book that after 18 years of psychic attack, Kosky has kind of learned to live with it. I mean, he just deals with it. Uh, in Finland, he works with other individuals who claim that they have been victims of government mind control experimentation, some of them being able to back up their claims with x-rays that seem to show tiny mushroom-shaped brain implants. Now, I went down a little mini rabbit hole today looking for these people that are linked from his website. I found a, a YouTube video of this German doctor, this woman, who has demonstration videos for people who also believe they're the victims of telemetric brain, brain control, brain manipulation, on how they can locate the implants that are not only in their brains but scattered throughout their bodies. And she has what just looks like a CB radio, just like some kind of two-way radio. And um, she holds the antenna of it in this video 
and basically she just waves it around her body. And there's absolutely no feedback from it. Like it doesn't make a sound or anything. I don't even know how she knows that it's doing anything. But she'll stop at her like nose and say, oh, there it is. You see, there's one. Uh, she'll start, you know, waving it around her her breasts and go, oh, look, there's several in here. <laughs> it's just really strange. Um, not good audio, but I'll, I'll link to it if you want to have a look at a strange German lady. Um, so the reason, again, this is my problem with Keith, is he entertains this. Like it reads like a crazy person's diary, obviously. But Keith entertains it. And I think he he does this because he needs it as an in to go down this occult rabbit hole. Because he says there's one detail from Kosky's story that ties into the UFO occult world. He says this is there's this additional strange element. It provides a piece of the puzzle that we are researching. After Kosky returned to Finland, the voices he was hearing started to tell him a different story. Now, and this is eventually, this is what they told him, they weren't the Royal Canadian Mounted Police at all. They were, in fact, beings from the dog star Sirius, the Sirius star system. So this starts Keith on this long trek through all this kind of occult speculation. He claims this is a symbolic link Ultimately, for him, it goes back to the Illuminati. But for my purposes today, it leads me into other things. He says at the beginning of this century, contact with the Sirius star system was claimed by the occultist Lucien Francois Jean Main, who, through the famous occultist Pappas, who was actually a disciple of the guy who wrote the uh, the Journey to Agatha, which I'll be covering in the uh, the Plus extension. He learned the rituals of the Ordo Templi Orientis Lodge, which was founded by Alistair Crowley. Uh, he formed his own group in Haiti. Now, Jean Maine is said to have, in 1922, combined the Ordo Templi Orientis rituals with voodoo practices to form the Cult of the Black Snake in Haiti. I and mean, that's a good name for a cult. I, I think that's better than some of these uh, kind of Latin, <laughs> the Latin... I just think calling your cult a black snake, that pretty much you know, lays it out there for people that want to get involved with something of that's named after a black snake. I think that's really good. He also claimed to be in contact with a disembodied being or a voodoo loa named Lam, an entity who the Otto Grandmaster Kenneth Grant said was one of the great old ones. Now, Lam, of course, if you're familiar with Crowley, you will know that Lam was uh, conjured, conjured by Crowley in this uh, summoning and he penned a drawing of Lam it's a famous drawing because he kind of looks like a grey alien, which leads us back to the whole UFO topic. Um, but this god, this elder god Lam, was said to be the same gods that were portrayed by H.P. Lovecraft in the 1920s and 30s. You know, the Call of Cthulhu, uh, the Dark Ones returning. And we've speculated on the show before, we've looked at researchers who have looked into the way Lovecraft wrote his fiction. and it does share some similarities with channeled writing. It shares some similarities with uh, dream inspirations or, you know, information that's not just coming from his imagination. It's coming from some other place. So Lam, according to Grandmaster Kenneth Grant, uh, had the task of uniting the current that emanates from the Andromeda galaxy with the current that flows from Sirius. So again, this is our tie back to Sirius. Uh, Grant believed that a dimensional portal 
exists in the Andromeda galaxy. And through this portal will enter the old ones, again, all very Lovecraftian, demonic entities that are intent on returning Earth to their dominion and having humanity for breakfast. Now, again, Lam is this prototypical big-headed grey and Crowley relates that Grant uh, identifies his holy guardian angel with uh, Sirius or Set Isis. So again, all these connections keep coming back to Sirius. So he, he thinks this is really bizarre that this, this crazy guy from Finland starts hearing these voices from Canadian mounted police. But then ultimately they reveal their true identity is from Sirius. And you start looking at Sirius in, in terms of the occult and it's linked to uh, these beings intent on returning to Earth and uh, shifting it back to their favour, um, taking over humanity. Now, it's funny because the modern version of this, the modern version of the Syrians is all, oh, they're our friends. They're here from, they're here to raise our vibration. They're here to save us. And we've been tacking on this thread for, you know, a long time in the show now that these claims that we hear from modern contactees, from modern abductees about Syrians, the channelers, it's, it's some kind of, um, there's some kind of thread. There's some kind of connection in the message that's always there. And, it doesn't seem to be a good one. It seems to be um, some kind of deception for something something darker. Now, he then moves on to the question of, well, what does this all have to do with the Illuminati? Like, And, and how is this tied into UFOs and especially the military cover-up of UFOs? And I'm glad he asked that question because <laughs> I'm wondering, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm wondering this as well. Uh, he says, occult investigator James Shelby Downard uh, wrote this wonderful essay and it was actually included in one of Jim Keith's anthologies, which I'll link to in the show notes for you. It was called Sorcery, Sex, Assassination and the Science of Symbolism. It researched the existence of a serious worship cult that he believes exists at the highest levels of the CIA. To get access to this, the highest levels of the CIA, You've got to be in this cult. You've got to join. You've got to be initiated. He said he cites one of their ritual locations as the telescope viewing room at the Palomar Observatory in California. There, he says, the adepts of the serious military intelligence cult enact rituals in the telescopically focused light of the dog star. So they train their telescope on Sirius and the astral rays that come through their telescope fill their chamber, and that's where they do their weird Egyptian priesthood, blood, masturbation ritual, whatever they do. That's where they do it. Now, this guy, I started to look into this guy. I thought, okay, this uh, this is a crazy uh, claim to, to dig into, that the CIA at its top levels is run by some kind of serious dog star cult. Let's look into this. So I get Shelby Downard's uh, sorcery, sex, assassination, and the science of symbolism. It is completely impenetrable. I don't even know how Keith got that out of what this guy wrote. It is complete gobbledygook. Like, it's one of those guys that sees symbolism and meaning in everything. You know, like those that um, claim in the 80s that, what's that cigarette brand with the camel? The name escapes me right now. You know the brand, the the camel. The camel's nose was a penis. Like the, everything about the camel was some kind of phallic symbol, that kind of stuff. This guy is that to the nth degree. He sees, like he actually believes that 
the assassination of President Kennedy was some kind of occult ritual. And the reason they had to do it, like the CIA serious cult had to do it so that NASA could get to the moon, because in order to get to the moon, you have to kill a king. And then to explain that, there's he connects like like the distance of a street where Kennedy was assassinated uh, across the road from that, there's a donut shop. And if you look at that donut shop's name, there's two little symbols on the L and those symbols linked back to ancient Egypt. And then across the road from that, the distance between the donut shop and the the tire shop down the road where you get the tires on your car is uh, 333 meters or, or feet. And 33 is the 33rd degree of the free. It's just nuts. It is so insane. I'm actually annoyed that I bought it so I could try and get something out of it for you. I'm really annoyed. Um, but I'll link to it. If you if you think you can dig into it and get a, a better result than me, go at it. Um, it's impenetrable madness, basically. And that's where I bailed out. That's where Because Keith's problem is he's a little bit like that too. He sees all these uh, symbols and connections. And this is the thing, like, when you take the Illuminati pill, <laughs> which I certainly haven't, uh, you see this where people are seeing these symbols in Nicki Minaj music videos and it's, all, it's always like there's some kind of uh, human evil design behind everything that's bad in society. Like everything that's uh, degenerate in society is some kind of design by the Illuminati. Uh, it's not res- the result of the, the people that just create that stuff. It's it's some it has to be some kind of outside control, which is absurd in my in my opinion. So I bailed out. I bailed out of uh, Jim Keith's book. That that kind of bit was fun about the CIA cults and that weird guy um, with the voices in his head. But um, it kind of led me back to someone I'd been reading recently, as I mentioned at the start of the show. Someone more grounded, who could perhaps see these connections for what they were. And that was Jeffrey Cripple. So I've had this book for a little while, uh, full disclosure. I haven't actually read much of it because it's quite dense. Uh, there's a lot in here. Um, and I found that it's one of those books where you'll just read something that he mentions. And I guess my main criticism is that Cripple's talking about a lot of um, pop culture stories, like comic books and movies and f- novels, sci-fi things. And he kind of assumes that you're already very familiar with the stories, which in a lot of cases I'm not. Uh, a lot of the stuff I have, I was never big on comics. Um, you know, there was never anywhere you could buy them when I was growing up in outside of Sydney. So uh, I found myself kind of stopping and going, oh, what's the story behind that? What's the story behind that? So I haven't really read much. I've just been going on these offshoots, which is what's coming up in our plus extension. But Cripple's book, uh, Mutants and Mystics, essentially explores how comic book heroes and fiction forms a kind of reciprocal relationship with the paranormal and paranormal experiences. They feed into each other. And he tries to show how modern mythologies can be read as cultural transformations of real-life paranormal experiences. He says that these pop cultural products are entangled with paranormal experiences. So it's interesting because a lot of this 
Well, some of it follows on from last week's episode where I was discussing uh, Eric Wago's suggestion that writers get some of their inspiration from retro-causal events. Some kind of uh, event, a serious, a shocking event occurs to them in the future and the ripples of that event travel back through time and influence their decision-making and, and thinking and actions in the present. And immediately in the introduction to Cripple's book, Mutants and Mystics, we see an example of something that Eric Wago would probably claim is a potential retrocausal event. Now, this is going back to the 1970s. It's a, it's a familiar story. Um, you know, we've, we've told this a bunch of times on the show, but it really sets the scene. It, it's comic book writer Doug Munch, who, is it Munch or Mensch? He found himself writing out the real in a work of fantasy a few seconds before it became the real. So Cripple says he sat down with Doug in 2009 and this was the full story that Doug told him. So he had just finished writing a scene for a Planet of the Apes comic book and it was about this black hooded gorilla named Brutus and the scene involved Brutus invading the human hero's home where he grabbed the man's mate by the neck and held a gun to her head to manipulate the hero, to you know, get him to do what he, he, she was his hostage. And just as Doug finished this scene, he'd finished writing it, he hears his wife call from the living room across the other side of the house and she has this strange tone to her voice. Now he gets up, walks the length of the house, goes into the living room and he sees a man in a black hood with one arm around his wife's neck and the other arm holding a gun to her head. Now he told Cripple that it was exactly what I had written. It was so, so immediate in relation to the writing and such an exact duplicate of what I had written that it became an instant altered state. He said the air in the room congealed, became almost like fog, and yet paradoxically I could see with greater clarity. I could see the individual threads of his black hood, he said. Now, Doug later became obsessed with this black-hooded intruder for months. I can't remember... The conclusion to that story, a cripple doesn't... I, I guess they gave the guy what he wanted and he left and everyone was okay, I hope. But yeah, he became obsessed with it and he became... It kind of stunted his writing because even though, you know, Wago would argue this is a retro-causal thing, the, the, the shock of seeing his, his wife or partner with a gun to her head, um, you know, would ripple back through time and cause him to write that. Uh, he believed that he was actually writing or creating reality with his writing. That was his take on it. Uh, he said to Cripple, it really does make you wonder, are you seeing the future or are you creating a reality? Should you give up writing forever after something like that happens? I don't know. And from here, he's got a, a couple of interesting examples of this, um, you know, link to writers and the paranormal experiences that occur. One that popped up was Dan Aykroyd. And this is on a lighter note considering the previous story, but... Uh, you know, you've got, of course, the the film Ghostbusters. Uh, it's written by Dan Aykroyd with Harold Ramis. And, you know, you'd look at that film and think, oh, the whole thing's satire. They just made up this kooky ghost story. But, of course, if you know the world of UFOs, you'll probably know that Dan Aykroyd is a serious UFO buff. He's been interested in it for years. But the thing I didn't know about Aykroyd is his entire family has been involved with the paranormal for generations. So his great-grandfather, Samuel August Aykroyd, presided over his own home spiritualist circle. They had seances in the home. 
His paternal grandfather was a Bell telephone engineer who really wanted to build this high-vibration crystal radio to contact the dead. Uh, His father, Peter Aykroyd, continued this family tradition. He had this huge library of books on seances. He had... um, uh, a writing of uh, or a history of writing on psychical research. He actually wrote a book called The History of Ghosts. Um, he discussed such things as uh, a German ectoplasm hunter, uh, a, a wax cast of a materialized hand, and a totally crazy photo of a teleplasmic mass emerging from the nose of a medium. And faces would appear in this mass. <laughs> so Dan himself said that my brother Peter and I would read these accounts. So he would obviously read the family library of seances, of ghosts, and he became a lifelong supporter of the American Society for Psychical Research. And it was from all of this that Ghostbusters was made. You know, it wasn't just a thing he sat down and put together one day. It, it came from, you know, this this history of the, the you know, the, the real paranormal. This is the thing that Cripple gets to, that... A lot of this stuff that has kind of become tropes and memes in society and, uh, you know, tropes in fiction, tropes in pop culture, it comes from real paranormal experiences. Now, uh, Cripple writes is actually more to it than this. Uh, it wasn't just that Aykroyd had a bunch of books to read and some, you know, family stories to share. He had his own experiences too. See, Aykroyd was sitting on his family's Canadian property one day And he was actually contemplating tearing down his great-grandfather's house and just building a new, much easier. But he actually asked his departed, you know, great-grandfather if that's what he wanted, if that was okay. He actually asked an ancestor for permission on what he was going to do to this property. And he said, suddenly I heard three snaps and everything vibrated like there was electricity around the whole area where I was sitting. And he took this as a communication from his great-grandfather that tearing everything down was a bad idea. He didn't like it. So he ended up restoring this old farmhouse. And he believes that Ghostbusters came from his great-grandfather. Like, it was somehow almost like a reward or, you know, this, this thing gained from doing the right thing and respecting his ancestors. Uh, he said he restored the farmhouse so we could kind of keep it as a shrine to, you know, this great Canadian spiritualist, his great-grandfather, and to his son and grandson. So there's still more, though, on Dan Aykroyd. So Cripple says that, you know, we know that Dan's into this UFO research field, and I've got a clip here where essentially Dan was discussing uh, in a documentary about him this TV series he was working on where... Essentially, he was given free reign to interview whoever he liked. And in this, before I play this clip, he's talking about, um, you know, how he had abductees on the show. He had John Mack on the show. He was interviewing, you know, Stephen Greer and, and Bassett together. Um, you know, people he respected in the UFO field. And he's talking in this clip here about how the show was suddenly cancelled along with some intimidation from, you know, some some familiar archetypes and Britney Spears. Let's take a listen. The last show, the last show we did, I had both Bassett, who uh, has the the UFO time clock, and then Greer. Both Bassett and Greer were there. They were my two guests for the day. Well, the show was cancelled that afternoon. 
and um, I was outside in, before I knew it was canceled, in between the interviews. And uh, I was outside, and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked up, I was outside having a cigarette, the phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy, and I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat. And he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street, it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. And he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd love the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. And whether this was like a warning to me because the guy got out of the backseat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. I never thought... I would hear a Men in Black encounter with Britney Spears involved, but there it is, Dan Aykroyd. And it, 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 this occurred, this intimidation occurred before he knew that the show was cancelled. So it was almost like this message of, this is what we're going to do, leave it alone, we'll shut it down. Uh, some interesting stories from him. Let's take a break here though. When I come back, I'm going to discuss uh, Jeffrey Cripple's own personal experience in Calcutta in 1989. And then we're going to talk about this comic book series, The Invisibles, and how the uh, creator of that, Morrison, uh, Grant Morrison, uh, how his own personal paranormal experiences inspired the whole thing. That's coming up on Mysterious Universe. Stay with us. your dreams into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace has the tool for you. And they've got those beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box so there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And buying domains is simple. You'll get all the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. 
Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com MU for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com MU, offer code MU. Now we're back on Mysterious Universe talking about Mutants and Mystics by Jeffrey Cripple. And I mentioned there uh, Dan Aykroyd's bizarre experiences with the men in black. But Cripple notes here is very upfront that he's had his own strange experiences and it was in Calcutta in 1989. He said, for days I'd been participating in the annual Bengali celebration of the goddess Kali. This is just in the streets and temples of Calcutta. Sounds like a lot of fun. But he said, one morning I woke up asleep. He says that is, I woke up, but my body didn't move. He was having like sleep paralysis. He said, I was paralyzed like a corpse, more or less exactly like the Hindu god Shiva, as he is traditionally portrayed in the tantric art. I was lying prostrate beneath Kali's feet. He said, then those feet touched me. An incredibly subtle, immensely pleasurable and terrifyingly powerful energy entered me, he said. It possessed me completely overwhelmed me. He said, my vibrating body felt as if I had stuck a fork in a wall socket. And perhaps more significantly, my brain felt as if it had suddenly hooked up to some sort of occult internet and that billions of bits of information were being downloaded into its neural net. Or better, it felt as if my entire being was being reprogrammed or rewired. A door in the night, a portal had opened And this was all before I felt my soul or subtle body being pulled out of my physical body by some sort of invisible super magnet. He said this energy was both obviously conscious and super intelligent and somehow completely other or alien, he said. Now, abductees commonly speak of a cellular change they have undergone. And we hear this all the time in the literature, some kind of information download Like they feel this before they're beamed through a wall or a ceiling, Star Trek style, Cripple says. And he says after this experience, they feel that this powerful residual energy is left in their body, almost as if it's stored in the very cells themselves. And Cripple jumps in and says, this is exactly how it felt. This is how it still feels in my memory. He said, it's almost as if some kind of direct right-brained mind-to-mind transmission took place as if those residual plasmic energies were encoded with ideas or structures that could not be languaged but could be stored and later intuited and now through the prism of the left brain's words as my books. So this is really interesting because Cripple claims that this experience has created, like he explains there, some kind of well of knowledge that's stored unconsciously that he somehow taps into and it informs the books he's written since that experience. Now, this is again, uh, like he points out, this is something we see uh, reported time and time again from abductees, contactees, uh, just in general people with uh, ecstatic experiences. It's not a conscious understanding. It's almost like It can't be brought back to the conscious realm, but it's there somewhere. And a certain part of the human psyche, the human consciousness can get it, can tap into whatever this information is that was stored somewhere. So he claims that this is at the core of, or he says it's the energetic core of this book, real experience. And he adds that time and time again, 
It's these paranormal experiences that go on to shape the world of fiction and pop culture. So the next example I wanted to discuss, because I've never, again, I'm not a comic book guy. Like I've never read any of this stuff. And this kind of description from Cripple blew me away. His next example is Grant Morrison. So Morrison was a Scottish rock musician, but of course he's well known for his comic books. He's written All-Star Superman, Batman, Justice League. He's done the new X-Men, a bunch of things. Uh, He actually revealed a contact experience he underwent in 1994 in his Kathmandu hotel room. And it was this event that became the template of what Cripple says is his most celebrated comic series, The Invisibles. Now, there's not exactly a solid narrative to his experience. I had a look around and it's like he interprets it in different ways in different places. But he does claim he was visited by shiny silver antibodies from the fifth dimension. And notice he doesn't say aliens. Like, I think a, a lot of people would, especially the way he describes it, would be aliens, silver antibodies. Um, they were from the fifth dimension. He, it was an experience he described as being electrocuted by God and something that no drugs could ever recreate. So it doesn't sound like he was on anything if he said that. Uh, Morrison describes how the creatures created a collapsing Stargate effect in his Kathmandu hotel room, took him out of his body. He said, I was in a super realistic space. There were three suns and there was a planet that was kind of blue and green. Uh, All of this went right into the comic books. Like it's all in there, direct from his experience. He said, there was a kind of communication with fan-like creatures made out of neon tubes, and it worked on sound frequencies and light. All of that went into his other comics for All-Star Superman. The same creatures peeled him off the four dimensions of space and time and showed him that things, or things as they were from the outside. He saw time as a single whole, the all now, the super context, as he calls it, a kind of, he called it a higher unfolding of reality a perspective above space-time. He said, one identifies with everything in the universe that is not self and sees all of history and all of our tomorrows as the single object as I believe it is. So again, it sounds very much like um, an ecstatic experience, something that is, uh, you know, repeated through history, this feeling of oneness, this feeling of connection with everything. And and again, a, a feeling of being outside of time. So all of that made it into The Invisibles. And Cripple in his notes here, he tells you what issue it's in, where that part of his experience made it into the comic book. But this is where he goes through the plot. And I would like to say to anyone who's been listening to this show for a while and is totally bored by this segment because you know The Invisibles inside out, why have you not recommended this to me? (laughs) Like, Why have you not sent this in and told me to read this? Because it sounds right up my alley. Uh, Cripple says, in terms of the basic plot, the novel orbits around a secret society of occult subversives battling a vast cosmic conspiracy run by extra-dimensional aliens called the Archons. Two opposing forces battling for the soul of humanity. Again, this really does tie back to uh, what Jim Keith was writing about with the uh, Alistair Crowley and Lam and all these occult guys from the 19th century, uh, including, you know, the Lovecraft... Uh, the Lovecraft stories, the Lovecraft concepts, that these extra-dimensional aliens were coming back to enslave humankind. 
But there was a battle, uh, some kind of battle for the control. So essentially it's these two forces. There's a force that wants total control and um, total, you know, yeah, total control. And the other is uh, wants radical freedom, freedom of thought. These two opposing forces. And Kathmandu is, of course, in Nepal and the city's famous for its elaborate tantric temples, uh, cripple rites. Uh, there's art and rituals all surrounding Tantra in, in Hindu and Buddhist forms. So, of course, these tantric themes appear throughout the Invisibles comic series. The Invisibles, for example, are led by King Mob, who everyone says is basically Morrison, the author. King Mob is him. He's just put himself in the comic. Uh, he was taught by an ascended master in a cathedral academy called the Invisible College until he was versed in all things occult and tantric. So we're back with these secret masters. We're back with the Mahatmas. We're back with uh, the, the Invisible Lodge. And in a series of dream sequences induced, induced by torture and drugs, King Mob is seen engaging in a sexual ritual among Buddhist tantric icons with a woman under whom he experiences the awakening of his own serpent current or kundalini, a fire snake ripping up through the spinal channels. And I just spoke about this recently, like late last year. So again, why haven't any of you sent me this comic book? Uh, in a later scene with the same woman, uh, he interfaces with superdimensional libraries, fuses with a suit of antimaterial, and manifests as an extra-dimensional four-armed insect version of Kali Unbound. So <laughs> it sounds it sounds insane. It's funny though when you read any kind of comic book story like this, it, they all sound insane and absurd like this. At different points later in the story, Cripple points out, we learn the source of the sexual ritual memory. The memory, it turns out, is an accurate one from both the future and the past. So remember he had this experience of existing outside of time and he directly saw that there is no linear time. It's Everything is this oneness that is indescribable. He puts this in the comic book as this memory that is from the future and the past. We learn that the original scene took place in 1924 in London with a woman named Edith Manning. Edie has kept a lifetime's tantric journals after being initiated into the tantra by a Mr. Reddy. As Eddie tells the story, or Edie, sorry, this latter tantric teacher, Mr. Reddy, while having sex with her in an Indian hotel, ejaculated in reverse, ignited her kundalini, and stripped off his human suit to reveal his true energetic form within a bolt of plasmic electricity. <laughs> How do you ejaculate in reverse? <laughs> what is that? How does that affect her? Uh, as if that were not enough. In another scene, we witness Edie giving King Mob, which again is Morrison, the author, some sort of strengthening potion from a tantric skull cup and explaining to him in India she once learned from Mr. Reddy how one has sex with a thought form. How you have sex with a tulpa. Again, why has no one sent me this comic book? This is apparently significant in the story, according to Cripple, because King Mob, aka Morrison, has already told her that he is such a thought form, a ghost-like psychical projection from the future. Uh, so this is because he's apparently from 1998, where he's lying in trance and his thought forms being projected back to her time in 1924. So he can have 
This sounds great. I really want to read this. Uh, after this time warping ritual sex, uh, still back in 1924, the couple anoint an occult left hand called the Hand of Glory, which of course reminds us of the left hand path, with their sexual fluids. And everything was made ready, it says in the, the comic books. It is through this green glowing left hand that an interdimensional door opens in the fabric of reality and the archons enter our world. And again, this is significant because wasn't this precisely what Crowley used to do? These weird uh, rituals. I remember one show a couple of years ago where we found this old manuscript. I don't know if it was, it was probably was from OTO or some kind of Rosicrucian thing. And it was all the instructions on how to do this uh, magic ritual. And essentially it was exactly as he's written here, um, using the the sexual fluids and like dripping them on a pamphlet of spells. It's just, it's gross. That's why they call it the left-hand path because it's not upright. It's not orthodox. It's uh, pretty wrong. So yeah, they open this interdimensional door. That's precisely what Crowley uh, was said to have done. Uh, that's how Lam came through. That's how we have Crowley's sketch of Lam. People say that's how Jack Parsons, the chemical engineer for um, the, the NASA program, blew himself up because he was trying to create some kind of portal. Um, Kripal says perhaps it is significant, perhaps it is not, that the radical Hindu tantra is called left-handed. Again, the left-hand path. So this, all these tantric illusions continue throughout the story. Um and eventually we're introduced to more kundalini stuff. A flying saucer appears. There's a classic alien abduction. There's this future New Age billionaire named Mason Lang. Um, so what's weird about this, obviously beyond how ridiculously bizarre it already is, is that Morrison expects his readers to go through and actually pick up on all the meaning behind these terms and the symbology of it. Uh, it's probably easy for, for us because, you know, if you're into the stuff we talk about on the show, you'll recognize a lot of it. But uh, maybe uh, for the average comic book reader, like, uh, are they going to think this is just not crazy? I mean, it is crazy. So his goal was for, yeah, the average comic book reader to kind of research these turn, terms on their own. And it, it would create some kind of, it would be like a hyper sigil, he says. It would create this kind of multi-dimensional contact experience. And it was meant to conjure the effect which it explores in the fiction. So it's almost like a doorway in itself. As Morrison puts it, the invisibles is the ritual. The comic book is the ritual. It's the spell. And the collaboration of the readership in that spell is important. So it's funny because this is what some people have contacted uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk with with their series Hellia and said, oh, you guys are doing some kind of ritual, aren't you? This is, uh, this is some kind of sigil. This is what you're really doing. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's funny when you look at what they, they're doing and the effect it has on some of the audience. It, you could almost argue that in the same way that Morrison is arguing his comic book series creates this effect. So Morrison, Cripple points out, took this participation to the next level in November of 1995 because the comic book series, I think, came out in 93, 94. And 
sales were good at first, but then it started to dip, probably because no one knew what the hell he was talking about. Uh, The sales started to dip and Morrison gets worried. So he puts out an an official uh, encouragement to his readership that they need to help him empower the series with, quote, their masturbatory magical rituals. Uh, He called it a gigantic global wank. He wanted everyone to do some kind of masturbation magic to some somehow power up his comic book series. <laughs> and bizarrely, it seemed to work. Sales immediately rocketed up. Um, you know, after this, Morrison, the guy's just full of bizarre experiences because he had a, a close brush with death after he called on everyone to do wank magic. Essentially, he had an NDE. Um, he saw, he had some kind of staph infection that wasn't identified and he was there on his deathbed, essentially. I mean, he was okay in the end, but he had a vision of some kind of, he calls it a Gnostic Jesus, a kind of slightly savage bearded firebrand appeared to him in a giant column of light. And this Gnostic Jesus said to him, I am not the God of your fathers. I am the hidden stone that breaks all hearts. And that's another line that goes directly into the Invisibles comics. This fiery Jesus, Cripple points out, told Morrison a number of beautiful things about how the world works, none of which he can remember. (laughs) Uh, He also told him something that he did remember, that he didn't have to die, that he could return. Again, this is the the NDE trope. You get a decision, you get a choice. Uh, If he was willing to work for us and spread the light, he could return. So this being, he has a contract with this being who says he's not the God of your fathers. He's the hidden stone that breaks all hearts. What the hell does that mean? And he's now working for this being? So again, only a month after telling people to perform wank magic for his comic book, he's told by Firebeard Jesus to return to Earth to serve him and the light. And he did this by putting this Gnostic Jesus all through the Invisibles comic book. Uh, Cripple says, you know, this kind of brand of Gnosticism is everywhere in the Invisibles, from the Archons to the Demiurges. They're taken from ancient Gnostic texts directly. And then there's that billionaire character who I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, Mason Lang. He has this childhood UFO abduction, which culminates in him drinking something called the Ultra Menstruum. (laughs) What do you think that is? The ultra menstruum. It's uh, drunk from a chalice identified as the Holy Grail. So there's ancient, Cripple points out there's ancient rumors that the Christian Gnostics, they were accused of consuming sexual fluids in their secret rituals. Cripple says they may have actually done it. That's where the ultra menstruum comes from. (laughs) Ultimately, Cripple says, he can recognize in this comic book series, the invisibles, the lineaments and occult energies of his own contact experience in Calcutta and the subsequent essentially magical understandings of writing and reading that they eventually produced in him. It's the same thing. I mean, Jeffrey Cripple has a bunch of incredibly thoughtful, well-researched and insightful books on uh, the strange world of the paranormal, but always in an accessible way to academia, I think. 
Uh, but he's coming out and claiming, no, this all came. The reason I can write these books, the reason I understand it, is because of this mystical experience I had. The information was implanted. I'm just tapping on it. This is, this is exactly what Morrison did. He had this bizarre, uh, out-of-body, alien, weird 5D, outside-of-time, ecstatic experience. And from it, we have this comic book series. And from this comic book series, how many people you know, come across these terms and concepts for the first time and start to investigate them, start to maybe not look into wank magic. I mean, come on. But, you know, they start to research uh, the metaphysical and maybe discover something along the way. So now we get to, <laughs> this is funny because this is all kind of in the introduction to Cripple's book. This is what I mean when I say it's dense and I haven't gone through too much of it, but essentially we get to his main argument, which is what he calls the super story. So this is a term he uses to describe these seven basic tropes, their myths or themes that are essentially at the base of this vast array, he says, of American popular culture, whether it's comic books, movies, sci-fi, novels, you know, it's all video games, it's all in there. All of these uh, myths or themes, he calls them myth-themes, are in there, these seven. Uh, they're repeated endlessly in mind-boggling combinations, but they're always there. And it's this centuries-long thought experiment, he says, that's still in the process of being told. It's still playing out. It's still having an effect on human beings. So I'll go through them very bri briefly. There's no way I can cover you know, even 50% of what he goes into with these because they're very detailed. But essentially the, the seven myths uh, or myth themes, uh, divinization and demonization. So essentially Western culture has been influenced for a millennia by forms of intelligence that have appeared under the divine and demonic masks of local mythologies and religions. He says, traditionally, these intelligences have taught, guided, warned, saved, awed, and terrified individuals by appearing in their inner worlds of dreams and visions, in the forces, plants, and animals of the natural world, and in the heavens. And of course, that means the sky. He says, human beings have long sought communion with these super beings and their transformative energies. They have also sought practical control over our protection from these sacred powers through the techniques of magic ritual, temple building, prayer, sacrifice, and worship. So this is the first theme that's in all this stuff. You could find this in all this uh, pop culture, all, this, uh, all these comic books, you know, and it, a lot of the book is him just listing uh, examples, 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 examples. I won't go into too much of that. Uh, orientation is one that I will talk about a little bit. He says, for much of Western history, this sacred source of power and wisdom was traditionally located far away or long, long ago, like Star Wars, and more often than not in the East. But there were other strategies as well. He said, like, that would be, it would be in Africa or the New World. Um, there would be mythical lands like Atlantis, Lemuria, always orientating towards the other, the other side, the center of the earth, the unreachable past, the Hyperborean age. You know, all of, all of this is in these stories, this sense of the other un, almost unreachable side, the other place where this knowledge is, this sacred source of power and knowledge and wisdom. Uh, he says... 
uh, each of these imaginative constructs oriented the Western religious imagination to the sacred as somewhere else. But he points out this is interesting because as uh, Western civilization expanded and colonized most of the world, the blank spots on the map became smaller and smaller. So it was harder to have a kind of mystical Tibet. It's harder to have a mystical India you know, when you're there and you've seen everything and you're, you know, building stuff there and, and essentially colonizing the place. Um, it's not that mysterious anymore. So he says in order for this to kind of, for the, the gap to be filled, uh, essentially you have the, the third myth, the third myth theme, which is alienation. This is the first discovery which emerged gradually from modern cosmology it involved the mind-boggling realization that the age, scope, and workings of the physical universe are not what our ancient stories claimed. Accordingly, the gods in their wisdom no longer come from the east, from the primordial past, or even from, from some small stellar neighborhood. They come from the vast reaches of outer space. They now watch us. They guide the development of human civilizations. They manipulate our religious beliefs and mythologies. They visit us, spy on us, sometimes even abduct us using their mysterious phantom ships. Having once colonized the earth, we now realize that we are ourselves a colony. So those are the three main myths and themes that I'll be talking about today. He goes on with the, I mean, the others are radiation, mutation, realization, and authorization. I won't go into them for the sake of time, but of course, I recommend this book if you want to check it out, especially if you're interested in, uh, you know, the history of comic books and where it actually comes from. Uh, but he talks about the actual origin story of the book, because of course, every good, you know, comic book hero has some kind of origin story. And Cripple notes that back in 1962, you had uh, the two Stanford guys, Michael Murphy and Richard Price, and they went out to Big Sur, California, and they founded the Esalen Institute, which we've spoken a lot about on the show before, this visionary community of kind of new ideas, uh, diving into meditation and consciousness and all sorts of esoteric stuff. But in terms of Michael Murphy, uh, it really boiled down to this evolutionary mission or vision, Cripple writes, that understands psychical and paranormal experiences to be the evolutionary buds witnessing to the future occult form of the species. Murphy calls this the future of the body. It's kind of like the evolution of humankind, right? And Cripple says he spent the first seven years of the new millennium researching and writing about Esalen, just diving into it, uh, obsessing over it, covering everything he, he could find about it. And during that same period of time, he found that he was suddenly obsessed with all these comic book mythologies from his adolescence. And he says it puzzled him. He's like, why, why am I getting so into this stuff again? And the obsession wouldn't go away. So he started to, you know, really delve into the question of it. Why is this so, why is there this pull to these comic book stories? And he started to realize how weirdly similar Michael Murphy's Esalen, uh, you know, kind of new age uh, evolution of mankind vision was to X-Men. Like it was basically the same thing. Gripple said Murphy's evolutionary mysticism not only looks very much like the X-Men, it is 
X-Men. It's the same thing. To add insult to injury, he said the evolutionary mystical school that would become Esalen was founded in Big Sur in the fall of 1962. That is one year before Stan Lee and Jack Kirby dreamt up a similar occult school in Westchester, New York for their X-Men. The strange resonance between East Coast mythology and West Coast mysticism. Isn't that bizarre? And I kind of see what he's saying. Like if you look at the the Institute Esalen, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Professor X's mansion and just the, the way it's, I mean, if you're really into the X-Men kind of cosmology, you could probably see more connections. But as someone who immersed his life in Esalen and was also entirely obsessed with X-Men, he's convinced it's like the source or the these creators of each tried to reach the same thing, but they, they were just two different paths. So that kind of stuff makes me question, well, where, where's the influence coming from? Is it just a coincidence that this emerges in human society at the same time? It, doesn't, it seems like too much of a coincidence. Like, this is why... I often argue that there's, there's outside forces, there's things beyond human imagination that influence what comes up through human society. It isn't just people sitting down and thinking about their experiences and then figuring something out. There's something external that influences what emerges in society. And yeah, sometimes you see these examples where two things of the same substance appear at the same time. Now, he had this bizarre synchronicity, he says, like while he was figuring all this out, you know, seeing these connections between Esalen and, and the X-Men history. Uh, he actually went to the theatre in 2006 to see X-Men 3, The Last Stand. And the whole time he's thinking about this, how this popular comic book mythology was almost identical to Murphy's mystical system from Esalen. And as he's watching these ideas appear and disappear in his mind and thinking about the film, he walks back to his minivan in the parking lot after seeing the the film. And he gets to, you know, about 10 feet away and he sees something golden shining in the sun and it's lying immediately below the door of his minivan. And he thinks, what the hell's that? And he's in Texas, so he thinks, oh, maybe it's like a cross. At first, that's what he thinks it is. It's like a Christian cross. But as he gets closer, he realizes it's a piece of costume jewelry. Like maybe someone was wearing it at the the film. But it's a perfect X. It's one of these, it's the perfect golden X-Men X just sitting there like it's been left for him, like it's been placed there, left for him, like the universe giving him this nod. Now, for him, this is incredibly meaningful. Cripple does say in the book that, you know, for everyone else reading this, of course, he can say, well, someone just dropped a part of their costume, big deal. But for him, of course, it's a synchronicity. It's, it's something really meaningful. So then he's like, I've got to write this book. I've got to start looking at these connections between uh, the mystical occult and paranormal realms and comic books and fiction and movies and sci-fi novels. So I wanted to talk a little bit about his section on orientation and the other. Uh, he talks about six somewhere else's in Western imagination so you've got worlds above, worlds below, prehistoric worlds, lost lands, uh, distant civilizations, outer space, future worlds, and now we have you know parallel universes and other dimensions. This is all in our in our kind of pop culture and sci-fi, but it's also in experiences. It's in real paranormal experiences. He talks about the origins of going below the Earth, 
uh, Hades, the Christian hell, the, the modern version we have today is the underground alien base. It's all still there. And I love that you can kind of trace these ideas back to something earlier, but you can never get back to their pure origins. Like the notion of hollow earth, for example, he points out it started with uh, Edmund Halley. He got the ball rolling in 1691. He claimed that there was this inner earth consisting of three concentric spheres that were spinning and giving them luminosity. After him, (laughs) along comes John Cleve Sims. So on April the 10th, 1818, John Sims self-publishes this manifesto well, not a manifesto. It's like, it's like an ad. <laughs> it's like a job ad, right? And it, it came to be called Circular One. And this is what he wrote. He said, to all the world, I declare that the earth is hollow. It's hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth and I'm ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in this undertaking. Yours, John Sims, 1818. No one knows where he got this idea from. This is what I love about this stuff. It's like, did it just pop into his head? Did he just wake up one day and say, okay, the earth is hollow and that's what I believe now? Of course not. Uh, Cripple says he believes it's likely he had some kind of vision And, you know, we're seeing that this is where this stuff comes from. It's some kind of, uh, like Cripple had himself and what Morrison had to inspire his comic books. It's some kind of mystical experience that triggers this movement and ends up being a thing in society. It ends up becoming a meme. It ends up becoming a a source for so much fiction and sci-fi. So this um, circular that Sims published it, like I said, it was a job ad. He ended up asking for a hundred brave companions, well equipped. They wanted to start from Siberia in the fall, uh, go out on reindeer and sleighs and on ice of the frozen sea. And he told them that they would definitely find a warm and rich land stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals and perhaps women. He says men, but you know he's implying that there'll be women there. And they'll return in the spring. Uh, so he, he went out, he did this. He, he never got to them. He never, I don't know if he ever managed to get a full expedition. I I imagine if that ever happened, I'd say it wouldn't have happened because he'd probably be dead, but he did manage to write, um, under a pseudonym, one of the first American utopian novels, Scribble points out. It's called Simsonia, The Voyage of Discovery. It was published in 1820. And this essentially became the structure of adventure stories that would follow in later science fiction. So essentially it's the structure is a trip to the some distant mysterious land, like whether it's another dimension or an alien planet or whatever. It's this trip to another, another land. In his case, it's a trip to the pole. The discovery of this land and the people and creatures inside, adventures and revelations while there, and a return home usually to ridicule and disbelief. No one believes you. I mean, you could argue that's kind of like the trope of the alien abduction as well. Visit to some other place, discovery of creatures, revelations while there, a return home, ridicule and disbelief. This was, yeah, this is a template that followed. So you had Edgar Allan Poe after this wrote um, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, uh, who is about a 
a ship captain and his crew, they essentially get sucked into one of these holes, these polar holes that Sims had suggested, you know, decades earlier. But when they go inside, they don't drown. They actually go to this other place and they're in, they encounter this shrouded human figure um, far larger in proportions than any of, of the men. It's like an underworld giant. And the hue of the skin of the figure was of the perfect whiteness of snow. So a few decades after that, you have Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth, 1864. Uh, same thing, like Journey into the Earth, Encounters with Creatures, had the first dinosaur fight in literature, Cripple points out. Uh, then you had Cyrus Teed. Now, we've mentioned Cyrus Teed on the show before. Uh, he was in uh, his lab in New York when he had this weird ecstatic experience and the, a goddess appeared to him, um, gave him all these revelations about the laws of transmutation and and creation. Um, Teed, what's weird about it is that Teed arrived at this idea that uh, matter is energy and energy is matter. Now, this was in 1869 and it wasn't until... 1905 that Einstein would actually formulate that concept into his papers and it would become a scientific understanding. It's like this guy just had this random, you know, ecstatic vision and it precedes any materialist scientific, um, you know, theory of the thing. It just pops into his head from this other being. Um, so it's interesting this would precede this momentous scientific discovery, but Teed also claimed that the universe is a hollow globe. That's the link to the inner earth. He, he believed that we lived on, like the universe is this uh, womb and we live on the inside of the concave surface. And when you're looking at the sky, that's the cosmic womb. Then there's the lost land stories. So this is where we get to Hyperborea, Agatha, or Agatha, uh, Shambhala, Lemuria, Atlantis, of course. Now, I want to tell you the story about Agatha in the Plus Extension. It's bizarre. Essentially, it's created by this guy, uh, Saez uh, D'Alvedri, one of those French names, hard to pronounce. Uh, he had this mysterious tutor by the name of ha Haji uh, Sharif, uh, and he wrote his title as the Guru Pandit of the Great Agathian School. Now, he goes on... Uh, Sa'es eventually realizes from the teachings of this strange guru that it's this hidden subterranean kingdom of millions of beings filled with advanced technology, hidden somewhere in the East, protected by the masters of the universe, ruled by an Ethiopian pontiff. Uh, it's a really bizarre story. But what's more bizarre is how the book got written, how he learned about it. Coming up in plus, there's stories of, you know, bizarre astral projections, weird... Um, pre-Sanskrit languages, uh, odd masters appearing from India and giving him information and him just losing the plot after it was published. It's very strange. Uh, you can also add on to that uh, Tahula, the ancient land of Tahula or Thule, uh, which apparently, like, when I think of Tahula, I think of the Tahula Society and the Nazis, right? You know, pre-Nazi Germany. And apparently this came from this guy named Pythias, he tried to sail north in the 4th century BCE. Uh, he, he sailed for six days past England, as we know today. He hit the Arctic and he called the place Tahula. And, you know, centuries later, 
it's resurrected in this bizarre way in Nazi mythology about this Aryan homeland <laughs> peopled by supermen with advanced high technology. It was all because this guy just sailed too far. <laughs> he just, he went too far. And a couple hundred years later, we have Nazi supermen. Um, and then he goes into outer space and future worlds. And this is all about the other. This hidden wisdom is always from this other place. You can't get it here. You've got to, you've got to make a journey to this hidden realm. And it's hard to get there. You've got to hire men and <laughs> find some entrance in the, in the ice. Um, he goes into the history of the Rosicrucian tradition as well. I just quickly want to mention this because it ties into what I was talking about on the last Plus show with Benjamin Krem and um, these masters, this secret society. This is what the uh, theosophists would discuss, the Mahatmas, the, the secret influences, the spiritual guiders of humankind that would appear uh, to select individuals and feed them information and wisdom which would go on to shape society. But the Rosicrucian is one of the first instances of this concept, this theme. Uh, it started in 1614, he said, with the publication of this German pamphlet. Uh, it had this Latin main title, The Pharma Fraternitatis, or The Legend of the Fraternity. The farmer claimed to tell the story of a certain father, Christian Rosencruz, which literally translated to the father, Christian Rosicross. He lived in the 14th and 15th centuries, according to this pamphlet, and he founded this mystical brotherhood in Germany after travelling to the Middle East, remember, travelling, orientation, travelling to the other, where he acquired a mysterious book, M, and learned the various occult teachings and died at the age of 106. So yeah, this is, again, orientation. He's going to this other place to get the secret wisdom. But according to the legend, his body, which did not deteriorate, was preserved in a magical vault for 120 years until it was discovered in 1604 by his followers. And this event was meant to signal the, the new age, the, the coming of the new man. Um, it would tear down all the old structures and build something anew. And this farmer pamphlet uh, also assured that any of its readers who wanted to join this secret brotherhood, uh, all they had to do was kind of publicly put their intentions somewhere. Like they had to go out and just kind of signal that they wanted to be part of this. And because there were members of this secret brotherhood kind of intermixed in society, unseen, they would uh, covertly approach you and you would be initiated into this secret brotherhood. So what you saw over the time was all these great thinkers, like intellectual geniuses, Descartes and others, even Francis Bacon, they would write, like if they wrote a novel or if they wrote a you know, pamphlet or a letter or a correspondence, they would put like a little signal to the Rosicrucians, like just say, hey guys, I'm here, uh, ready to join whenever you want me. Like all these really smart people wanted in on this secret society. They wanted this wisdom. They wanted to experience this uh, mysterious initiation. And what is so funny about this, and, and when you actually look into the history of the Rosicrucians, um, the, the reason that they were always disappointed, these people, the reason why they were never contacted by this secret order is because the entire thing was a meme. It was a confabulation. It was a prank. It was a ruse. 
So there's a great um, there's a great researcher who did a not a super long book, like a 200 page book, looking at the history of the Rosicrucian myth. Uh, I can't remember his first name. Macintosh is his surname, but I'll, I'll see if I can find his book for the show notes. But he did all this research and claimed that there was repeated insistence of the likely author of the Rosicrucian myth. He was a man by the name of Johann Valentin Andrea. And according to him, the whole thing was a playful hoax. It was a teaching trick. You know, it was a ruse that was meant to inform an idea. It was meant to create a sense of enchantment. And it really did. Macintosh, the researcher, suggests that Andrea had hoped that his works would be interpreted in a symbolical way. Uh, kind of like the way Cripple is writing this book. Like there's a symbol behind it. There's a symbol of going to the other place, getting this knowledge, uh, being initiated into this secret wisdom. But the opposite happened. Like when everyone got this story, uh, it just became this huge thing. Like people were obsessed with it. They were taking it literally. They really wanted to be initiated into this secret brotherhood. And apparently, according to Macintosh, he was really disappointed by this. He was disgusted. He later wrote in other works, quotes like, Listen, ye mortals, in vain do you wait for the coming of the Brotherhood. The comedy is at an end. (laughs) It's a joke, people. There's no Brotherhood. But later readers, uh, other literary figures, scholars, Freemasons and occultists, they didn't care. They would take up this Rosicrucian spirit. And Cripple writes its dream of a new age of the spirit uh, would develop into a hundred different forms. And this is so weird. Like, this is one of those cases where it's like the fiction created enough reflection in society, it created enough mental interest that it manifested something. That's something was created or perhaps something was there that emerged after this. So one example uh, it was this 19th century author. He was this English aristocrat, uh, ex-cabinet minister, Edward Bulwer-Lytton. And Bulwer-Lytton wrote this novel called Zanoni, came out in 1842. And the inspiration for it came to him in a dream. But he had this real grasp of the literature of Rosicrucianism. Like, obviously, that was an influence for him. But he doesn't claim to be the uh, originator of this text. He claims that the instructions came from a dream who essentially led him to this old man who instructed him in the wisdom and gave him the key to the book. Now, he met this old man in this antique bookstore in Covent Garden that specialised in esoteric subjects. Now, the researcher on the Rosicrucian history, Macintosh, he did all this research on Bulwer-Lytton's library. Uh, He found his old notes. Uh, He actually found that bookstore. It actually existed between 1790 and 1840. And he says that there are good reasons, including this private correspondence, there's these old letters that were kind of dug up, that the book he wrote, Zanoni, this um, kind of, uh, again, the same secret brotherhood idea, is based on an actual encounter with a member of some highly secret Rosicrucian group who either initiated him or revealed a certain amount and then enjoined him to silence. So it raises interesting questions, like did real 
secret brotherhoods emerge after the prank from the 1600s? Or were there, you know, existing groups that were already there? Was the author of the prank tapping into some kind of hidden knowledge that these things were there? Was there some kind of wisdom that was given to him, even though he did it as a kind of prank? Um, but the thing with Bulwer-Lytton, this, this English writer, who claims he met this mysterious guy who gave him the secrets to this novel on secret societies, he became famous for his Hollow Earth novel, The Coming Race. Uh, one of the first examples of the genre that would morph into science fiction, uh, set in an underground ki- uh, kingdom of Egyptian columns, super-evolved beings, as the Vril, the coming race, the Vrilia, they're going to supplant human species on the surface. Uh, the protagonist is an Englishman who falls into the underground world and has this female Vrilia soldier, uh, saviour and guide, sorry, a superwoman named Z. Uh, and the novel orbits around this mysterious electromagnetic spiritual energy called Vril. Uh, it can tr- control technology. There's like Vril craft. And of course, you have Vril mentioned in the uh, the Tuhula societies that emerged in pre-Nazi Germany later on as well. And what's weird about this is it's all linked with psychic powers. It's linked with these mystical energies. It's linked with this uh, hidden group within the bowels of the earth. Um but essentially, it's all very familiar because the Englishman protagonist in this story, he imagines how humanity might still be saved from certain extermination if the Vrilia, this secret society, this secret brotherhood, decide to finally emerge on the surface through, he says, an intermixture of race that is through a hybrid breeding program. Sound familiar? So Cripple immediately catches onto this thread. He says, now we're approaching that third myth, that third theme that appears in modern modern fiction, or you could argue fiction. You have uh, passages like the intermixture of race on the skulls of Rilia uh, that are far loftier in the apex, which suggests these tall, long skulls, which eventually you would see uh, depicted as aliens, maybe even greys. And this is where Cripple says, look... I can't help but point out that the core themes of this book written in the 1800s by this English guy who met some mysterious character from a secret society who gave him the knowledge to write the book continues to influence modern writers in weird ways, whether it's conscious or not. So, of course, he mentions Whitley Strieber. And there's this passage he quotes from Strieber with this interview where the interviewer is asking him about aliens. And Strieber says, no, I didn't say aliens. I never said that. I don't use the word aliens because I don't know what they are. He says, my impression is that the physical beings that are involved are from the earth. They are an evolutionary leap of some kind, but they are primarily earth oriented. He said, that's my impression. We are not looking at aliens. We are looking at our replacements. It's almost like he's talking about the coming race. And this really is one of the kind of tropes of the contactee, the, the modern abduction stuff, is the hybrid breeding program, the coming race. It was all there in the 1800s. These guys, you know, this was all in their literature. It was all in these occult circles. Um, and then you get, I won't go into some of the uh, modern versions of Rosicrucianism that emerged in the USA, uh, essentially, it was a guy that practiced sex magic. Um, but again, it was like 
his name was uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, and he practiced his own kind of Rosicrucianism, but it was really just, it was basically free love. Like it was just, you know, ahead of its time, 1960s free love, but with a bit of sex magic thrown in. But he claimed that he got all his knowledge from, again, from going to the other. So he made this pilgrimage to the Middle East and he said, one night I made love to a dusky maiden of Arabic blood and the experience emerged the the fundamental principle of the white magic of love and this sexual magic um, gave him all this knowledge. (laughs) He says the union of magnetism, electricity and nerve aura, you know, gave me all this gnosis, like he got all this secret wisdom uh, from banging some, (laughs) some Arab woman. (laughs) again it's like it's the same theme though it's like getting the wisdom from the other um it's almost like a a coded fiction i wrote in my notes because if you sum up the rosicrucians this is cripple's words it's like the people who took up the mantle they fused fantasy religious devotion and their own spiritual experience to create a bold new form of western esotericism coded in a kind of christian fiction it was a fiction that was later taken up and developed into a spectrum of mystical movements that eventually went far beyond anything that the original writers had in mind. And again, I haven't uh, completed reading the book, but it feels like that's where he's going, that, you know, it's easy to look at some of this stuff and say, oh, well, the reason we have these modern stories is because some, you know, some guy made it up. Some crazy guy made it up in the 1800s and it's just been copied and changed for, you know, 100 years or more. But it's, there's more than that. The, the reason these themes, in my opinion, keep recurring is because they're based on some kind of universal truth. They're based on some kind of unchanging uh, truth that emerges, mostly emerges in these mystical states. And that's why when you look at these myths that appear in all of this modern culture, all these recurring themes, you can often trace them back, as Cripple has done, to someone who's had a vision, someone who's had a mystical experience, an ecstatic experience, who's had an expanded consciousness and pulled information from somewhere else, or sometimes been given it by something that's non-human, something that's of the other. So where this especially goes in a weird direction is Agatha. And I started reading the most recent translation of this French source. It's translated by John Graham for Inner Traditions. Again, there's a lot more to these stories than, oh, they were just influenced by a similar thing someone wrote a few decades earlier. Uh, There's these repeating myths and themes. And with the kingdom of Agatha, I want to tell you the story in our plus extension after the break. Because where the information comes from is really bizarre in this case. Like, you're talking about hidden cults in India that have knowledge of languages that predate Sanskrit. Sanskrit is the oldest language in the world. Uh, It's a very strange, especially when some of these French occultists, after they've been given a mission by some of these hidden societies, some of them screw it up. Some of them don't get it right. And they start kind of going off in their own direction. And as I started reading The Kingdom of Agatha and the history behind it, I saw how this echoes, this is almost exactly the same kind of uh, playbook 
of the contactees from the 1950s and 60s. Adamski is a perfect template for what happened to this French guy in the late 1800s. Uh, and of course, yeah, he talks about this underground kingdom uh, where there's turtles with four eyes, uh, dudes with two tongues, and weird underground railways made of uh, glass. <laughs> that's If you're in for that stuff, that's in there too. That's coming up in our plus extension after the break. Look, I know I, I went all over the place for this episode, but all of this connects in some way. Uh, if you read it in 24 hours like I did, I'll link to uh, Jim Keith's Sources of the Illuminati. Uh, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, the, what I was just reading from there is Mutants and Mystics from Jeffrey Cripple. Uh, I'll put a bunch of stuff so you can follow these threads as well, all at mysteriousuniverse.org. But that is a wrap for this free show. Thank you so much for listening. You know the drill, If but if you're new to this show, uh, make sure you check out our Plus extension. There's much more coming up on this episode. Uh, we've got all that good stuff on Agata coming up. If you want access to that and the additional exclusive shows we do every Tuesday, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. It gets you access to the big extensions we do every single Friday. And you also get exclusive shows on Tuesday. These exclusive shows, exclusive seasons uh, just for plus members. In addition to getting all the extra stuff, Plus members also get a totally ad-free version of the show. Uh, you also get a, a discount off digital products in our store. Plus members get a 15% off code that's on your dashboard. Uh, all the features of our apps are unlocked as well. And you get that good feeling of supporting your favorite show. That's a wrap for this free edition of AMU. I'm sure Aaron will be back with us soon. Thanks to everyone who's sent him well wishes for his loss. He'll bounce back. It's not um, It's not something he can't bounce back from. So we'll see him soon. Um, but uh, thanks for your support. And thanks for being uh, patient with this episode. That's a wrap. If you're on free, if you're a Plus member, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll see you soon. Plus extension. Great to have you with us for this weird look at 19th century French occultists.